Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. In the years prior to the uh, American War for Independence, George Whitfield was the most famous man in the colonies. He's one of the most influential people in the history of American Christianity, and yet few people today uh, are familiar with him at all. My guest, Dr. Thomas Kidd, is a distinguished professor of history at Baylor University. He's going to help us get to know uh, George Whitfield uh, much better. He's the author of George Whitfield, America's Spiritual Founding Father. We talked with Dr. Kidd a few months ago on his book, Benjamin Franklin, The Religious Life of a Founding Father. Thomas, good to have you back. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Okay. George Whitfield, uh, a remarkable man. He was uh, friends with John Wesley. Uh, they were both serious uh, Christians about their faith. They were had this group called the Holy Club uh, at Oxford. Um why do you think Whitfield becomes associated with the American colonies in a way that Wesley doesn't? Well, the most obvious reason is because Whitfield was was in the colonies for so much of uh, his preaching career, where uh, Wesley only came to Georgia once, mm. and very... Uh, <laughs> short and embarrassing right. in, in, in Georgia for John Wesley, who kind of had to leave on the lamb uh, after a very bad dating relationship mm-hmm. <laughs> and so forth. So uh, Wesley, just his impact directly is uh, in Britain. Um, Whitfield comes to America uh, seven times, um, which which is an incredible number of uh, visits to the colonies from somebody who is based in um, in England, uh, and in fact, Whitfield dies in America in 1770 on his last uh, visit here, and, and he, he dies in Massachusetts. So um, it's not only, I think, th- that Whitfield is in America a lot, but it's also that Wesley is hugely influential, of course, um, as the great organizer of the Methodist movement, mm-hmm. but in terms of celebrity, uh, Whitfield, as you suggested, is just unparalleled in the mid-18th century. I mean, he's he's the best-known public figure uh, in Britain and America, um, period. I mean, except except I suppose for the king. Um, but more people have read things by Whitfield. More people have certainly seen Whitfield than have seen the king. Um, and so Whitfield's uh, fame and impact is just uh, staggering for the time, um, both in, in Britain and in America. Now, what was his relationship to John Wesley? Well, for a while, Wesley was a kind of spiritual father to Whitfield. Uh, Wesley, I think, was 11 years older than Whitfield. Uh, John Wesley had already graduated from Oxford when Whitfield was a student there, and uh, and, Whit- and Whitfield became part of that holy club that was a group of kind of early Methodists there at, at Oxford. Um, and so, I mean, Whitfield in correspondence would even speak of Wesley as his father, um, and, and Whitfield had had uh, his, his birth father died early and then had a difficult relationship with his stepfather, uh, so I think Whitfield needed that. Um, but 
when Whitfield's celebrity took off uh, in the late 1730s, uh, it didn't take too long before he was quite a bit better known than John Wesley. And I, I think that was difficult on their relationship, as you can imagine. I mean, that they could sort of go from uh, um, the father-son kind of relationship to Whitfield all of a sudden being the sensation of the Anglo-American world. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and you start to see tension emerge over theology. I was going to say, they had theological differences too, didn't they? They had huge theological differences, and and you get the sense that under the surface it was as much about personality as it was about theology, but it did play out over the difference between Calvinist and Arminian theology about free will or predestination. And John Wesley um, eventually decided to denounce Whitfield in print, mm. uh, and it almost totally broke their relationship. Although they they were basically reconciled about 25 years later, uh, so <laughs> there's there's hope yet. But uh, <laughs> um, and, and and Wesley ended up actually preaching uh, Whitfield's uh, memorial service in London when when Whitfield died. Um, so that, so they were able to eventually be reconciled. Wow, that's very nice. Uh, why have we forgotten George Whitfield for the most part? I mean, you don't hear him mention uh, Wesley, you know, because of the Methodism. Uh, and Whitfield, though, kind of disappears yeah. in, in popular in popular American Christianity. I mean, sure. academics know him, but yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, he shows up in most every American history survey course and, yeah. and so forth. But um, I think that there's a couple of reasons. I mean, one is you know you compare him to Wesley, and Wesley has this great organizational legacy of the Methodist Church. Um, I always think that the three titans of the Great Awakening in, in Britain and America are John Wesley, George Whitfield, and then Jonathan Edwards mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. of Massachusetts, who's the great mind, the great intellect of, of the, the Awakening. Right. Um, for Wesley, you have an organizational legacy. For Edwards, you have an intellectual legacy that survives in a vast body of writings by Edwards. But with Whitfield, I think his great impact was in preaching itself in, in the moment of, of preaching. Um, uh, by all accounts, he's, he's one of the great preachers the world has ever seen. But the, the, the power and the, the thunder and lightning of his preaching are in a way lost to history because you had to have been there. And, of course, nobody's running a video camera. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. You know, I was thinking if we could just have a, a YouTube clip of Whitfield, yeah. I think we would understand Wouldn't know, that be why, great. why he was so great. Uh, but but he's not a great intellectual. He's not an organizer. And so the, his, the power of his role is really very much in the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh what give us some idea of his preaching achievements? How many heard him? Uh, you know, what were the what was what were the cultural consequences of his preaching? Well, he is a pioneer on the, a, a couple of fronts. I mean, one is that he would preach extemporaneously, um, so that someone like Jonathan Edwards would would preach from a written-out manuscript, or at least very detailed notes. Mm-hmm. Um, Whitfield had a repertoire of sermons that he would cycle through because he was traveling 
uh, obviously internationally and, and, and speaking. So he had a relatively short list of, of sermons that he had memorized and and could adjust to what's happening at the moment. And so he had no notes. He had a background in the theater before his evangelical conversion. Um, and I think he brought those kinds of techniques into his preaching. I mean, anybody who's preached knows that there's a theatrical element to mm -hmm. even the most sober kind of preaching. Right. But uh, Whitfield was quite dramatic, um, even going so far as acting out characters, the prodigal son or something like that. He would He would even kind of take on that character in his preaching. And so it was very affecting. He was very, very good at it. Um, at being um, emotional, but not uh, you know not fake, not over the top. I mean, I think it was very sincere. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so he was so popular uh, and drew so many people. I mean, it, that nobody had ever seen anything like this. And by by the late 1730s in London, you're seeing crowds reported in the 30, 40, 50,000. Wow. One time in, in London, even 80,000 people. How could they hear him? Have come. Yes, it, I mean, nobody had seen anything like this. And, of course, this is pre-amplification. There's yeah. no electricity. Ben Franklin's working on that at the moment. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, he doesn't have a microphone. And you think, well, my goodness, how in the world could all these people hear him speak at one time? And, and one thing I, I think we have to say for sure is that he must have just been an incredibly loud man uh, <laughs> because of his background he knew how to project his voice at right. distances um, but I think the people on, on the edges of even a 40,000 person crowd uh, you know they couldn't make out what he was saying um, but they just wanted to be there yeah it was such an event um, I think it, it's not trite to compare it a little bit to like the Beatles or yeah. something like that, the, the the British sensation coming. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and so it it brought a popular dynamic to ministry and preaching that was pretty new at at, at the time when so much of church life was very formal and and rigid and regimented. I've always been tickled by the idea that Ben Franklin had a great appreciation for him. You've written on Franklin, you've written on Whitfield. What was the nature of the relationship? Well, it starts as a business relationship, definitely, because Whitfield is always looking for the most talented media people who can help him get the word out about his gospel preaching and his and his meetings. And so when he went to Philadelphia, when Whitfield went to Philadelphia for the first time in the late 1730s, you know, he's he's on a search for who's the best media man in town and people tell him go talk to Franklin. Um and so Franklin realizes and Franklin had been hearing about Whitfield for a couple of years at this point. Franklin knew that this guy was a cash cow. Um, and 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 he he realized if I could just get the rights to publish his sermons uh, in Whitfield's travel journals and so forth, these will be among the the best selling stuff. And it, it was true. Franklin just made a phenomenal amount of money off of publishing Whitfield stuff. Uh, he would also publish anti Whitfield stuff. <laughs> so he, he was happy to to make money any, either way. But um, over time, uh, they did become I think close friends. Um, uh, and part of that was their common experience of celebrity. Um, Whitfield became famous first, but by the 1750s, Franklin is very well known in Britain and America. 
And um, so they sort of understand each other about what, what it's like to be an international celebrity. But I think Franklin is also just very, very open in, in a classically liberal, tolerant way about people who are different from him mm-hmm. religiously. And so Whitfield would not pull any punches. I mean, Whitfield would tell him, you need to be born again, Ben Franklin. You need to accept Christ as your Savior. And, and Franklin would kind of keep him at bay and say, you know, I, I think I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but it's just a wonderful relationship. And even when Whitfield died, I mean, Franklin told people in private correspondence, he didn't have to say this, about how much he admired Whitfield and respected Whitfield. So I, I, it was it lasted for 30 years, and I think it was a close friendship. Hmm. My guest, Dr. Thomas Kidd, we're looking at George Whitfield, America's spiritual founding father. And if you say, huh, you haven't heard of this guy before, well, uh, you don't. you're not alone. Uh, as influential as he was, uh, one of the three great uh, religious figures of the First Great Awakening, uh, we're trying to restore people's awareness. I'm Al Creston. More coming up. And a good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Thomas Kidd. The author, most recently, of George Whitfield, America's Spiritual Founding Father. Uh, we are trying to assess, uh, get a real feel for this man's significance. Um, he was uh, he died in 1770, and so where, where were his peak years? Well, it really the late 1730s and early 1740s, which of course coincides with um, the the great upsurge of the First Great Awakening, mm-hmm. which which is uh, as much of a British uh, movement as it is American. And I mean, it's kind of a you know chicken and egg thing, and about what you think about the providence of God working in the First Great Awakening. But there's no doubt that Whitfield's preaching. Um, is the most widely known and sensational aspect of the First Great Awakening in Britain and in America. Does he, does he help, does his celebrity help unite the experience of the colonists? This is a, a major question in the literature on George Whitfield and the, and the Great Awakening, okay. and what the Great Awakening has to do with American culture on the eve of the American Revolution. Right. Um, I think that there is no doubt that uh, the American people, the colonists in the 1740s, had never had a shared experience like what they do um, by hearing and reading uh, Whitfield. Because probably by the end, we could estimate that of the white colonists, probably something like three-quarters of them had heard Whitfield speak in person Wow! by the end of Whitfield's life. Amazing. Um, it's tough to imagine. I mean, it, it, you know, of course, we're not talking about the, the numbers of people uh, back then as you do today. But, but still, I mean, to have that kind of uniform religious experience, cultural experience, and people have different reactions to him. Some rejected his message, some accepted it. But just having heard Whitfield is is an amazing conditioning kind of effect on the colonies. Uh, And so some people have said what the Great Awakening was about and what George Whitfield was about very much undergirded 
the development of the American culture that's that's more unified and maybe ready for the for the revolution. I, I think one of the problems with that is that Whitfield draws uh, huge crowds in England and Scotland and Wales too. So um, it's as much of an Anglo-American movement as it is just an American mm, yeah. movement. So, so I, you know, I'd love to sit there and tell you, you know, that, that Whitfield somehow kind of caused the revolution or something like yeah. that. But it's it, it, you don't want to go too far with it. But um, you know, Americans in in the era of the revolution were quick to seize on Whitfield, his image, and claim his legacy as something that was like that kind of founding father kind of kind of role um and it's totally understandable because it, the revolutionary leaders the patriots would speak about the revolution very much in spiritual christian terms um the best known christian leader at the time even at, at the time of his death in 1770 is whitfield and so you know he's going to get his memory is going to get caught yeah. up with what the revolution was yeah yeah uh Talk to me about, I mean, you know, Catholics and uh, especially evangelical Protestants today, while doctrinal differences remain, often uh, enjoy one another's uh, and understand the commonness we have in Christ. How did Whitfield, this is centuries ago now, how did he regard the Catholic Church? Well, he is— very much a man of his time uh and 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 a protestant of his time and so because of that i mean he he at times will express uh vitriolic anti-catholic mm-hmm. uh, opinions that this is especially the case um because he uh, is so often watching wars break out between Europe's Catholic and Protestant powers. Yep. yep. Um, and, and, and I mean, he's even uh, briefly a chaplain to an expedition uh, in the mid-1740s that, that New England led out against uh, New France, uh, you know, going up and attacking a French fortress uh, on the coast of Canada. And, and so when he's giving these kind of militaristic sermons um, you, you know, it's just inevitable in the time period that it's going to be, uh, you know, there, there's going to be a strong anti-Catholic um, theme there. Sure. But he also, I mean, it, it, with all these people, you also see occasionally that they're reading Catholic authors as devotional sources. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I mean, it, they don't have it kind of all neatly arranged about, you know, you know, oh, we can't read Catholic authors. And, yeah. and, and so, I mean, I mean, but but he he definitely uh, is representative of the time that, that can just be viciously anti-Catholic. Would you say Edwards is the same way, roughly? Yes, Edwards is the same way. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that's just, I mean, they grow up, and, I mean, Edwards grows up seeing French and Native American attacks on frontier towns in mm-hmm. Massachusetts. I mean, that just breeds war tends to breed hatred about these yeah. kind of things. Sure. So um, it's it's understandable, if quite unfortunate. Uh, Woodfield was uh, an itinerant evangelist, right? He was never a pastor. Yeah. Uh, he 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 was appointed as a chaplain to some, a wealthy benefactor in England, but basically he was on the move yeah. uh, all the time. Uh, I I was a pastor for five years, and and I know from fellow pastors at that time that uh, there's a little bit of tension between the itinerant evangelist who passes through and uh, preaches, 
and then leaves you, the local pastor, to deal with the consequences. Uh, I imagine something similar happened with Whitfield. It definitely did. I mean, you see the tension about um, many, many pastors desperately want Whitfield to come uh, and preach in, in their in their church. But Whitfield did tend to re- leave uh, wreckage behind when he, because he, especially as a young man, he was um, quick to criticize religious authorities and would get into some really uh, nasty fights with especially local Church of England leaders because he, he is a Church of England uh, minister, um, but is not on good terms with many, many Church of England uh, you know, you know, uh, ministers and, and bureaucrats. Um, and so uh, this would leave difficult situations for people, and, and churches would split mm-hmm. over Whitfield. Wow. Should we have him here or not? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, all kinds of denominations would see church splits over Whitfield's role. So, um, and and I think that every local pastor will know that if all you had to do was preach, <laughs> you, you know, things would get a little easier. You right, know I mean? and, right. And so uh, that, that uh, I, I think there's probably some frustration with Whitfield at the time that, well, you know, he doesn't, he does almost no kind of pastoral ministry um, and, and he can leave when things get difficult. So uh, there, there's definitely that dynamic with him. Did he have a sense of uh, destiny? I mean, did he when he was a young man? Uh, you know, before he was well known, while he was still uh, understanding his own spirituality, so to speak, uh, did he sense that he was equipped for great things? He, uh, again, as a young man, had a, a piety that. Today we would consider um, sort of charismatic or Pentecostal okay. um, in the sense that he put a great deal of emphasis on the leading of the Holy Spirit and experiences in the Holy Spirit to help him to know uh, what he should do, what, it, what he should do vocationally, and, and um, what, what next steps he should take. And it, it, it was... Um, very important in his early journals um, and his and his autobiography uh, to him to to note that um, I mean he was considering about whether to pursue ordination or not and he had what he considered to be a revelatory dream about a meeting with the bishop um, and the, that in this dream the bishop gave him a gift of a couple of gold coins to buy books or something like this and he said. Sure enough, when he had this meeting with this bishop that had not even been scheduled at the time of the dream, that the bishop gave him these gold coins. (laughs) For a historian, you're you're kind of in a position, of course, as a Christian historian, I'm open to these kind of things. Sure. Well, wow. I mean, that that either happened or that didn't happen. Right, right, exactly. Story dream, you know. Um, So, I mean, he he definitely felt that God was setting him apart for these great... Uh, purposes that he didn't even understand. Later on, he got a ton of criticism for those that kind of more charismatic piety. Uh, and in, even in later editions of his journals and autobiography, he, he took a lot of it out. It was, it was just too controversial by the time he had become, uh, you know, into the, the maturity of his ministry. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, 
you have any idea of roughly how many people he preached to over his career, or how many how many sermons he gave? It it, it the the numbers of people uh, probably exceeded you know a million. I, I mean, it, w- it would be hard to know. I think that the number of estimated sermons. Uh, a low estimate would be about nineteen thousand, uh, and wow. and there were definitely days where he was speaking three, four, maybe even five times a day. Um, he was also, uh, from an early point in his ministry, he struggled terribly with health problems. Oh. I think that were exacerbated by this incredible pace that he was keeping up because he doesn't have a car, he doesn't have airplanes, he's he's traveling by carriages and horses. Uh, sleeping on the ground and these kind of things. So it, he he has to have been one of the hardest working preachers in Christian history. Uh, that that's absolutely behind. He's talented, uh, gifted, but he's mm-hmm. also incredibly hardworking. So the the numbers are just mind boggling. Uh, do you think that he is uh, presently receiving the attention he deserves from uh, American historians? Well, you know, I wrote uh, a bi- this biography of him and, um, partly because his, his 300th birthday was in 2014. And um, I felt like that there there is a gap. There, there were a couple of scholarly biographies that came out about him in the 1990s that kind of fo- one focused on the theme of sort of Whitfield and commerce, the other one on the theme of Whitfield and the theater. And so I thought, well, first of all, there needs to be a, a kind of more comprehensive scholarly biography of Whitfield and his ministry, mm-hmm. because that's the way he understood himself. Right, right. Um, but there, there are also these Christian approaches to Whitfield on a popular level, and I thought, you know, maybe I can bridge that. Yeah. I so, read Arnold Dollymore's two-volume work yeah. many, many, many years ago. Yes. Yeah. But, uh, so, well, I... I Greatly appreciate your work, uh, Tom, and I thank you for being with me today. And hope we can Thanks talk for again. Me. Yeah, Dr. Thomas Kidd, George Whitfield, America's spiritual founding father.